All right. Amen and amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Mark. If you would turn to Revelation 21 and 22, we want to look at what the end of the book says. Because the end of the book is our hope. It's what we have trusted Christ for. And so we want to look at that today and seek to be encouraged by it in light of all the various things we've talked about during the sharing time. There are truths that are meant to help us when we face all these various difficulties in this life. And a huge part of it has to do with what God has promised us. And we see the consummation of all that Christ has done and all that he's promised us in these chapters. You know, it's interesting that many of the fairy tales end with something like, they all lived happily ever after. And the question is, why is that? One of those fairy tales of Cinderella, most of us are familiar with Cinderella, and she's the despised um, sister in this family where the other sisters and the mother mistreat her and she ends up meeting the prince at the ball and and he comes looking for her because she left a, a slipper behind and he fits the slipper on her foot and he says I have found you and she says to him I found you and the end of the story says and so Cinderella and the prince were married and they lived happily ever after If you read about how that phrase, they lived happily ever after, came to be, it's kind of interesting because it's often used in our day and time with regard to romance of some form or weddings. That just like in the story of Cinderella, uh, the girl meets the prince and they get married and they live happily ever after. They get wedded together, get married, and ride off into the sunset. And that's the way it's often used in our culture. And yet, uh, obviously before that, it was used at the end of fairy tales. But the reality is it actually started being used in about the 16th century. And it was used in connection with heaven because the ever after was heaven. And probably the earliest reference to something close to they lived happily ever after is a Protestant who said in the 16th century, talking about the Gospel of John uh, and the book of Revelation, I believe, Moreover, John had commended faith sufficiently when he said that the dead which die in the Lord are happy ever after. And so even though today we often associate it with romance, weddings, and that kind of thing, Originally, it was in reference to Revelation 21 and 22. And yet, the the interesting thing is, there is a wedding in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the wedding of the bridegroom and the bride. And that wedding, as opposed to all other weddings, truly produces a happiness that is full and forever. Um, You might remember, I mentioned last week, um, C.S. Lewis says at the end of his Chronicles of Narnia that all that took place resulted in things happening that they could not explain. And he says, and for us, this, the end of all the stories 
and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. We know that the Chronicles of Narnia are a, a kind of analogy to spiritual truth and to the Bible. And so C.S. Lewis ends his story with what the Bible ends with, the glorious truth of all those who've trusted in Jesus living happily ever after. The question is, why do all people, Christian or not, long for a fairy tale ending? Well, it says in Ecclesiastes, God has set eternity in our hearts, and I think that's part of it. We long for full and lasting happiness. And so that's part of the reason why we, we all like fairy tale endings and we long for fairy tale endings. But it's also because there really is an ending that is happily ever after. And that's the ending that we find in these chapters. I've tried to sum up what we find pictured here in light of all the different commentaries I've read on these chapters. And one way to put it is in these chapters, we have familiar, extravagant, terrestrial symbolism pointing to unfamiliar, incomprehensible, heavenly realities. Because all the things that are talked about here are things that are familiar to us, but they're pointing to things that we can't fully comprehend. There are realities of what God has prepared for his people that cannot be adequately put into words. You might think of what we talked about last week, about the idea that the kingdom of heaven is talked about in terms of uh, a pregnancy. When Christ came, it started, um, you could say, the labor. And history is in labor until the second coming of Christ when the kingdom will be born or consummated. But you often see uh, when a woman has a child, they'll take a picture often of The woman right after the birth holding on to the baby. What does that picture convey? Like I say, a picture conveys, you know, uh, a thousand words or more. Can it convey all the wonder of what just happened? No. Can it convey the wonder of what you actually see? No. Can it convey the wonder of what lies ahead of that mother and that child? No. It pictures something very real and very important, but it cannot fully convey all that that means. It's the same way with these pictures in the book of Revelation. It pictures reality, but it pictures it with the acknowledgement that we can't fully comprehend all that God has prepared for us. But I'd like to at least highlight what we find in these chapters, and hopefully God will encourage us through it. So let's just begin by reading the first eight verses. We read these verses last week, but I want to read them again today and just touch on a few things before we move on, because these eight verses kind of set the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation, and it focuses on what it really means to say heaven on earth. So in verse one, it says "Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven And the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. One of the things that has fascinated me over the last few years is to read about the various groups and organizations that are actually pursuing heaven on earth. If you read about the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum, you can read online that their goal, in so many words, is heaven on earth. The eradication of death, the whole issue with climate change and population control and um, trying to manage what's going on in the world in various ways is very much about heaven on earth. If you read the UN um, goals, the United Nations goals, it's right there in black and white. Their goal is to basically eradicate um, illnesses and disease and to put us in a position where we could live forever, in a sense. Um, You can see a good illustration of that uh, in regard to all of this in light of a man in Israel, an Israeli, uh, who's a professor of history in Israel, and his name is Yuval Harari, I think is his name. And there's a Christian apologist who's also a professor of mathematics named John Lennox who was talking about him. And he said, there are two agendas from Harari's perspective in the 21st century. There are two agendas. The first agenda is basically to deal with the problem of physical death, to remove that, to eliminate that. Then the second agenda, he says, is to, and this is the way he put it, massively enhance human happiness. Massively enhance human happiness. If you think about what Revelation 21 and 22 talks about, it talks about the elimination of death, and the massive enhancement of human happiness. And so this man, Harari, says the way to that is through re-engineering. Um, John Lennox says, uh, how are we going to do that from Harari's perspective? Re-engineering them, speaking of mankind, from the ground up, genetically, every other way, drugs, etc., all kinds of different ways, adding technology, implants, all kinds of things, until we move the humans from the animal stage through our superior brain power. He says, according to Harari, we'll turn them into superhumans. We'll turn them into little gods. Talking about people. And so what is he talking about? If you go online and you look Harari up, he talks a lot about 
artificial intelligence, both the good things and the threatening things about it. But his perspective is, like the World Economic Forum, is that there is a fourth industrial revolution coming. And it's the technology revolution. It's the merging of the human and the technological. The idea is we can achieve heaven on earth through technology. Well, the Bible says that will never happen apart from God. But it will happen because of God and because of what he's done for us in Christ. Because what we have pictured here in these first eight verses is we have the end of the fallen world. We have a picture of the people of God envisioned as a city in a wedding dress. And that's why I said it's the wedding of all weddings, the marriage of all marriages that does result in people living happily ever after. We have at the heart of this, the presence of God among his people, which is really what heaven is. Hell is the absence of the presence of God. Heaven is the presence of God in all its fullness. And so as a result of that, we see the end of sin and all its consequences. We see the reward of life to those who are trusting Jesus, as well as the punishment of those who refuse mercy. But at the heart of it all is basically what happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You remember what was the first miracle, it says, in John chapter 2 that he worked? It wasn't a ministry, a miracle of healing. He went to a wedding. He went to a wedding. They ran out of wine, and he turned water into wine. Why is wine significant? Because in the Bible, oftentimes, wine is a picture of joy. He turned the everyday thing of water into joy. And it's interesting, if you look at the book of Isaiah, which is considered the gospel of the Old Testament, there are certain passages that talk about what many people believe are the new heavens and the new earth. In chapter 11, it says this, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The wolf lays down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf with the lion. A little boy will lead them. There'll be kids playing near what used to be poisonous snakes and things like that. It's all a picture of the peace that's going to come to all of creation through what God has promised us in Jesus. Then in Isaiah 25, it says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Again, it's a reference to this mountain. If you notice in Revelation 21, it says that um, John was taken up to a high mountain in verse 10. We'll get to that in just a minute. So it's this whole high mountain theme. The Lord will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, 
a banquet of aged wine, another pitcher of joy, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's that last uh, sentence there is exactly what was referenced earlier in Revelation at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let us rejoice. And it says, this is the God for whom we've waited. That's what all of us will be saying when we see him. This is the God for whom we have waited. Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote a sermon that many of you may have read or heard. It's actually a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, which is about love, the great chapter on love. But there's a phrase in there that talks about when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And the last sermon in the series on 1 Corinthians 13 by Jonathan Edwards is about heaven. The coming of the perfect is understood in the context of the coming of perfect love. And so he preaches his last sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 on heaven. And he entitles it, Heaven, a World of Love. And he says in this um, sermon, he says, Here I remark that the God of love himself dwells in heaven. The God whose name is love and who is both the cause and source of all holy love. Heaven is a part of creation that God has built for this end to be the place of his glorious presence. This renders heaven a world of love for God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. The apostle tells us that God is love and therefore seeing he is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. There, there, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory and beams of love. And there, this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, and as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. So he's using all kinds of metaphors to talk about Basically what we find in Revelation 21 and 22 because he references Revelation 21 and 22 several times in this sermon. And he talks about the fact that heaven is heaven because of God. Heaven isn't heaven simply because our loved ones will be there or because there's no death or whatever. Heaven is heaven because God is there. Because God is love. And he describes what is so important about that. He says that heaven is a world of love because God is love. And he pictures God as the sun. That the sun sends out rays of light. And he says that's just what God does in his love. Or he pictures God as a river of love that continually flows out with love. And he actually pictures us as Christians in heaven 
splashing and frolicking and bathing in the ocean of God's love. I mean, for the people in that day and time, the ocean was bottomless. For them, the ocean was incomprehensible. It, it, they looked at the ocean, they could not see the end of it. And so all of it is meant to picture the incredible joy that we're going to have in the love of God. There are two things that our hearts long for. We long to be loved and we long to be happy. Every person wants to be loved and wants to be happy. The reality is those two things go together. Together. But the only love that will ever make us fully and forever happy is the love of God. And that's why people get married. And marriage is a wonderful wonderful thing, a wonderful blessing. But people go into it thinking, now we're going to live happily ever after. And this person is going to satisfy my soul. They're going to be everything I've ever longed for. And they may be the best wife you could ever have. They might be the best husband you could ever have in a fallen world. But they will never be everything your heart longs for. Because only God can be that because God designed us to only be satisfied with him and his love. And that is what is promised us in heaven. That is the goal. And it's when we try to manipulate each other to try to get them to be what we think we need them to be that we create hell on earth. But when we know that God is the only one who can satisfy our souls and we're looking to him, then we can love people regardless of of what they do to us. So it really matters where you're looking for heaven and where you're looking for love and where you're looking for happiness. It truly makes a huge difference whether or not your hope is in God and what he promises us in these chapters. Truly heaven on earth. The second thing is the interesting way we find uh, pictured you and I and all Christians in heaven. If you look at verse 9... It speaks about the glorified community, which is the the community of believers. It says in verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we're talking about people. We know that the bride of Christ is the church, is, is Christians, as a collective But then he says in verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal and he measures its its wall 72 yards according to human measurements which are also angelic measurements the material of the wall was jasper the city was pure gold like clear glass 
The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no, excuse me, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its uh, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So remember, on the one hand, he's picturing a city with golden streets and gold everywhere and precious stones. And yet he's talking about the bride of the Lamb. So he's talking about you and me. He's talking about the church collective. He's talking about the glory of the glorified saints. So he's picturing something for us. He's he's not saying this is exactly what it's going to look like in heaven with a a city that has uh, that goes up off the earth 1500 miles. He's talking about the glorified community of saints. Um, there was a TV show when I was growing up called Cheers. And the theme of that TV show was really interesting. It was a song. And it started off this way. It says, making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they, they're always glad you came. It's really an interesting thing when you think about this isn't a Christian song, but it's a song about the longing that people have. Now, this was a bar where people would show up at the bar and people would walk in and everybody greet them by name. And so the song was really about the longing that we have for community, the longing to be known and to be welcomed and to be loved. And that is fulfilled in the community of believers. Because what we have here pictured is we have the glory of God that permeates the experience of believers in heaven. Again, the picture of a city is a picture of the community of believers. And yet the picture of the bride is the the picture of the intimacy that Christ has with every individual believer. You understand that? You've got the collective group of believers like the city, but you have the individual relationship that that bridegroom has with every individual in that city so that um, everyone experiences the full, rich glory of God and Christ in heaven. And the wonder of this all is pictured 
in terms of value. You've got gold everywhere. You've got precious stones everywhere, which is meant to talk about the incredible rich value of this fellowship with God. And then you've got this gold and the, and the jewels that also speak of the amazing beauty of this relationship that we're going to have with God. And you've got this picture of a city, this new Jerusalem, that is 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles tall. What is that all about? It's about the incredible size of the mercy and grace of God. Because earlier in Revelation, it talks about the countless multitude. It's a picture of the incredible mercy of God that millions and billions of people will be saved by Jesus and will be a part of that community. And it's pictured by this huge new Jerusalem. And yet the interesting thing is the wall is only 72 feet high on a 1,500-mile city. Seems like that's a small wall for a huge city. Why? Because the wall isn't there to keep people out. The wall just simply delineates the boundaries of those who are part of this city. And the interesting thing is the gates are always open. In, in that day and time, you would build walls and close the gates at night to protect yourself from enemies and from threats. The gates are always open. There are no threats. In fact, there, are, there is no night because there is no sin. There are no threats to our fellowship with God. And that's what's being pictured here in this chapter on the New Jerusalem. Um, the gates are always open, which means it's, there's easy access to the God who created us and who saved us in Christ. And you've got the 12... Uh, tribes that are on the 12 gates. You've got the 12 apostles that are on the 12 foundation stones. It's all about God saving, as we sang, from people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That the Jews and Gentiles are going to be saved through the blood of Christ and we will be one people of God. But there's one other aspect of this picture. The idea of the city being 1,500 miles wide and, and long and high it's a picture of a cube, and that's exactly what the Holy of Holies was in the Old Testament. Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it's where God manifested his glory and his presence. And so what is the picture being painted there? Is that all of heaven is now the Holy of Holies. And every believer, not just the high priest one day a year, but every believer gets to go into the Holy of Holies. Every believer gets the most intimate, loving, unbelievable fellowship with the living God. Every believer. Nobody is treated differently. And so it's a glorious picture of the people of God. And, and through that fellowship, we see that God glorifies his people. It's a, it's a picture of our glorified state. And Jonathan Edwards in his sermon talks about that and he talks about the glorified state in terms of love. He speaks of the, the, the God 
who is at the heart of the picture of heaven as being love. But he also talks about that our glorified state is all about love. And he says there are none but lovely objects in heaven. And he says all of them will be perfectly lovely. He says in this world you've got some really godly people and really good people by God's grace. But he says, you know what, you can always find something wrong with them. You get close enough to them, you find out that they're not as perfect as they seem to be from afar. And if you, if you live long enough with them, you find out that they can get on your nerves too, that they can bother you, and that it's not all uh, you know, roses and teddy bears and everything else, all uh, wonderful times because of our sin. But he says in heaven, there won't be a single thing to take away from our enjoyment of each other and our enjoyment of God. He talks about if you go to a, a city, even in the best of cities, you're going to find dirt. You're going to find issues with people in our day and time, homeless people and other people with all kinds of problems and and deteriorating buildings and things. But in the New Jerusalem, everything will be perfect. Everything will be great. Um, if you get close to me on a Sunday morning, you might hear some of my singing and find me out of tune at certain times. And he says, nobody's out of tune in heaven. Everybody sings perfectly in heaven. Nothing to grate on our nerves in heaven at all. And then he also says, um, all the things we love will be in heaven. It's an interesting statement to say. All the things that we have loved here on earth will be in heaven. This is what he says about that. He says, Every gem which death rudely tears away from us here is a glorious jewel forever shining there. Every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransomed spirit waiting to welcome us in heaven. There will be the infant of days that we have lost below through grace to be found above. There the Christian father and mother and wife and child and friend with whom we shall renew the holy fellowship of the saints, which was interrupted by death here, but shall be commenced again in the upper sanctuary, and then shall never end. There we shall have company with the patriarchs and fathers and saints of the Old and New Testaments, and those of whom the world was not worthy, with whom on earth we were only conversant by faith. I don't know if we'll all have name tags in heaven, They'll walk up and say, are you Abraham? Are you Paul? Are you Methuselah? You lived a long time. So I think we're just going to know. Everybody's going to know our names. And I think we're going to know everybody's name. But however God does it, it will be the perfect way. And we will have a fellowship with everyone in heaven, which is an amazing thing. How how God is going to play that out or facilitate that god knows but he has a way to do that and obviously um, jonathan Edwards goes on to say that the reigning that's going to take place in heaven is the reign of love and he talks about the fact that in every heart in heaven love dwells and reigns not a heart is there that is not full of love and not a solitary inhabitant that is not beloved by all the others In heaven there shall be no remaining enmity or distaste or coldness or deadness of heart towards God and Christ. 
Not the least remainder of any principle of envy shall exist to be exercised toward angels or other beings who are superior in glory. How many times do you show up at church on Sunday morning and you're just not into it? You feel dead, you feel cold, you feel indifferent. It's none of that in heaven. Our hearts will be inflamed with love to God. How many times do you notice your heart envying other people, wishing you had what they had? He says, the interesting thing about heaven is not everybody's going to be the same and yet everybody will be the same. What does he mean by that? Everyone will be perfectly happy, but there are rewards in heaven. Even Jesus said there are going to be some sitting at his right hand and his left hand, places that the Father has chosen for them. Not everybody's going to be doing that in the same sense. And so there will be different rewards in heaven But Jonathan Edwards argues that love is actually increased in joy when it sees the person loved blessed. So if you really love other people in heaven, even if they have more than you in some sense, you'll be happier because they do. You'll be fully happy yourself. It's like someone has said, every person's cup will be full in heaven even if some cups are a little bigger for various reasons. The reality is, the Bible does say, we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. But it also says, we will all be perfectly happy and we will love each other and we won't envy the fact that your cup is a little bigger than mine. People joke about mansions. You know, I'm in the shack down here and you're in this beautiful, wonderful house. But the reality is, if there's any any kind of truth in that kind of scenario, uh, we'll be happy with whatever we have. Because the issue isn't what we have. The issue is fellowship with God. The issue with it is enjoying God. And so it's an amazing thing that's pictured here for us. Well, let me try to just wrap up for today what we find here, and we'll touch on some things next week as well. But... Life-giving throne. Look at the first five verses of 22. This is really the end of the picture that is painted uh, for us about uh, the new heaven and the new earth. It says in verse 1 of Revelation 22, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and they will no longer, excuse me, there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp or the, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. The heart of this picture is the throne. And I'm calling it the life-giving throne. I've mentioned the song by Bob Dylan before, entitled, Gotta Serve Somebody. And he says in the chorus, But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. What is the truth of that song? The truth is, we are creatures. 
We are not self-sufficient. We know that we're dependent. And we know that we have to look to someone or something outside of ourselves to get what we need. Now, what we do as sinners is we look to other people, we look to the rest of creation instead of God. But when we are brought to our senses and when we're in our right mind, we look to God for what we need and we realize that there's nothing better than to be ruled by perfect love. If God is truly perfect love, and we say, you know what? I don't want to be ruled by perfect love. I want to be ruled by someone or something else. We are insane. Truly insane. To say, no, I don't want to be ruled by perfect love. I want to be on my own. Creatures can't be on their own. So we're dependent. And so it's only right and wise that we should rejoice in the fact that there is a perfect ruler. Because we've got to be ruled by someone or something and we've got to serve someone or something. And that's the picture that we have here. When we talk about the throne, we're talking about a place from which God rules. But what comes out of that throne? It says... A river of the water of life coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it says, on either side of the river was the tree of life. So it's basically picturing for us here Eden 2.0. We've gone from Eden in Genesis to Eden in Revelation. The river of life is a picture of God in his rule over us, his loving rule over us, his perfect loving rule over us, satisfying our every thirst. The picture of the tree of life is God in his perfect loving rule in heaven over us, satisfying our every hunger and keeping us fully healthy when it talks about the, the healing of the leaves. And at the center of all this is it says they will see his face. And that's what theologians call the beatific vision. The fact that the only thing that will satisfy us and make us truly happy is to see the God who created us. That's why Moses asked God, show me your glory. And at that point, God said, I'm sorry, you can only see my backside. But in this case, he says, I will gladly show you my face. Do you remember what? I think it was Philip talking to Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He said, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. Show us the Father and it will be enough. And he spoke truth. Jesus said at that point, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. But Jesus also knew that he had not seen the Father in all his glory. He saw really the Father and Jesus, but he had not seen the whole glory of Jesus. Therefore, he had not seen the whole glory of the Father. And yet that is what heaven is truly about. And that's why there's the parable of the treasure in the field, where the man finds the treasure in the field and he sells everything to have that treasure. Or the man finds the pearl of great price. He sells everything to have that pearl. Why? Because there's nothing more valuable than to see and enjoy the face of God. And to see that face not angry at you, 
but smiling upon you and loving you with all his heart. That will be heaven. That will be heaven. Truly, truly heaven. Jonathan Edwards says, and I'll wrap up here for time's sake. He says, everything in the heavenly world shall contribute to the joy of the saints. And every joy of heaven shall be eternal. Where the saints shall find and enjoy all that they love. And so be perfectly satisfied. Everyone rejoicing in the happiness of every other. Where love is always mutual and reciprocated to the full. Where there is no clog or hindrance to the exercises or expressions of love. You ever feel clogged up? You come to worship and you feel clogged. You try to love that person that's a little challenging and you feel clogged. There's no clogs in heaven. There's the heavenly Drano. Washes away all those clogs and we will worship God with all of our hearts and we will love every person with all of our heart. That will be amazing. Truly amazing. Full acquaintance and and perfect intimacy in all. All this in the garden of God, in the paradise of love, where everything is filled with love. Let me just close with this quote. He says, And thus they will love and reign in love, and in that godlike joy that is its blessed fruit, such as I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath ever entered into the heart of man in this world to conceive. And thus, in the full sunlight of the throne, enraptured with joys that are forever increasing and yet forever full, they shall live and reign with God and Christ forever and ever. Now think about that. Heaven is going to be Not where we're just sitting around playing harps and getting bored with doing the same thing every day for millions and billions of years. There will be something new about heaven all the time. There'll be something new about this infinite God that we fellowship with so that our joy will be full as much as we can stand and yet increasing all the time. That's the glory of heaven. We will not be bored. We will not think, oh, I saw that yesterday. We will see God in greater, deeper, richer ways forever. And we will be amazed forever. And we will be singing and praising God forever because of what we see. It's like C.S. Lewis said, when you have a good meal, what do you have to do? You have to say something. Boy, that was good. Will there be a day in heaven when we taste of God and don't say, boy, that was good. There won't be a day in heaven like that. Never will there be a day in heaven like that. The glory of all of this, and we'll talk more about this next time, is that it says in verse 17 of chapter 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Let the one who is thirsty come. 
Thirsty for what? Thirsty for what we just talked about. Thirsty for what we just saw in Revelation 21 and 22. Thirsty to be rid of your sin. To be rid of not only the penalty of it, but the power of it. Thirsty to see God and fellowship with him. Thirsty to be a part of the family of God. Thirsty to drink and be fully satisfied. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? Talking about water. He said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would would have given you living water. Jesus says, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for what I offer you? Are you thirsty for what you really desire that you can find in me? Ask me and I'll give it. Ask me. Have you asked him? Jesus says, do it today. You can ask him and he will answer And for those of us who've already asked him, he says, keep on drinking. Those who believe, drink. Keep on feeding that faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious wonders of what you've promised those who are trusting you. And we pray, Lord, that it would truly cause us to rejoice in our trials. That we would count it all joy in every trial Because all of the trials of this life are meant to feed our happiness in the world to come. And so help us to truly count it all joy. And to rejoice that our names are written in heaven. No matter what we're going through on earth. And may we long for and look forward to truly heaven on earth. And we pray, Father, for anyone listening this morning who hasn't yet asked for the living water, please help them to see that you, Lord Jesus, are the living water, the only one who can satisfy their souls, and that you are an able and willing Savior for sinners. And please grant them grace to ask, even this day. Father, we love you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd meet the deepest needs of our heart for you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.